So that's how I potentially cost the University of Alberta $40 million in one fell swoop in uh, in about 10 months, uh, trying to simplify a reply coupon. If you use the mail to raise money, if you put those reply coupons in your packages, make sure if there's one thing you do is add that little tick box about making a gift in your will. Uh, when people put their hands up, that is a very good indication that you have an expectancy coming your way. Helping nonprofit marketers, fundraisers, and leaders like you grow their revenue and impact so they can do more good in the world. This is the Build Good Podcast. Now here's your host, Mike Dirksen. Well, hello, and thank you for joining me on the Build Good Podcast. This is the show for people like you who work hard to build a better world for all of us. Now, today on the show, we're talking about a massive opportunity for your nonprofit to add revenue to your bottom line for years to come. We're talking about the largest gift your donor may ever give to your organization. We're talking about legacy marketing. Now, did you know charitable bequests are now worth literally hundreds of billions of dollars in Canada? So if you're not already giving your donors a chance to leave behind a gift for generations to come that honors their values and beliefs, today is the day to start. And if you already have a legacy marketing program in place, you're likely looking for effective ways to improve your messaging and strategy. Well, today's guest is going to show you three common mistakes many nonprofits make when asking donors to leave a gift in their will. And he's going to give us three easy solutions that you can implement today. We're talking to David Kravinchuk, a seasoned fundraiser and also the founder and convener of the Western Canada Fundraising Conference. You're going to learn from David why you shouldn't educate your donor on how to leave a gift in their will, why you may need to ignore some of your brand standards to effectively communicate with your donors, and why you shouldn't mention most planned gift options for your donors. And as a gift for you, David is going to share one of the biggest blunders of his career and help you avoid making the same mistake. So here's my conversation with David Kravinchuk. David, I'm excited you're joining us today. You're an expert in legacy marketing and uh, legacy giving is one of the biggest opportunities for nonprofits right now to build a sustainable revenue stream for years and, and decades to come. So thank you for coming on the show. Oh, you're so welcome. It's one of the things that I love talking about. And and really, I feel it's such an urgent, urgent thing that charities need to be taking uh paying close attention to. So I'm super glad that we get a chance to chat about it today, Mike. I'll just start with the obvious question, which is why is legacy marketing so important? Why why does it matter that we invest in it? And why does it matter that we do it well? Right. Well, this is uh, (laughs) the real answer is because it's the uh, most revenue that you can expect to get for your charity if you do it right. So we know that the average bequest gift, uh, the average gift in will in North America is larger than the average major gift. And it's really the kind of major gift that every single donor, uh, no matter uh, their personal wealth, their personal uh, income can make. Uh, People from 
working class right up to the wealthiest individuals you know can make very significant gifts uh, using um, a gift in their will or a bequest. At the core of every legacy marketing program is consistent communication with our donors. And, and that's where you're going to identify three mistakes that the many nonprofits make when marketing their legacy program. And uh, you're also going to give us three tips on what to do instead. Three solutions that are <laughs> easy to implement that don't cost anything or don't cost much. And that will give our audience a really quick win if they start implementing that. But before we get into that, I want our audience to know that you're an authority in legacy marketing because you've tried and tested a lot of stuff over the years. And you've made mistakes so that our audience doesn't have to make them. <laughs> And one of those mistakes costs the University of Alberta close to $40 million. I think we all want to hear about that. Well, maybe I should say uh, right at the beginning that it had the potential to cost the university 40, almost $40 million, uh, maybe even more. Uh, but we certainly hope that when once we caught our mistake, uh, we were able to, uh, over time, make up for it. So uh, what had happened, Mike, was back in the day, I was uh, responsible for the direct mail program uh, for all our donors at the University of Alberta. And if you've ever worked in direct mail or you're a, a charity fundraiser that has to put together packages in the mail, you know one of the most important pieces to that is the reply coupon. And uh and it was something we paid a lot of attention. You know, that little form that people use to make their gifts uh, when they send in their check or write their credit card number to make that actual donation to your organization. So at U of A, we had an extremely complicated form for a, for a variety of reasons. I won't, won't get into it, but uh, it was something that would drive me crazy because we knew that this was something that was so difficult for donors to kind of navigate through, and we wanted to make it as easy as possible, uh, knowing that the less time they spent having to navigate through this awful form, the more likely they were to actually respond, complete the form, and send in their gift. Uh, and we also tried to you know, be nice to our donors and not make them angry right at the moment they were writing us a check. So in an effort to make this form simpler, I decided to remove a, a section from it where we had, uh, you know, put in a few tick boxes um, uh, related to planned gifts that, um, you know, we just thought complicated the issue for making that annual gift. So uh, done deal. We made it adjust a little bit simpler, patted ourselves on the back. Fantastic. And uh went forward to see that our, our donations continue to go up with all the kind of improvements and changes that we were doing in the program and uh, really feeling pretty good about ourselves and, uh, and thinking that we were very smart. And then my colleague, uh, the director of Plan Gifts, uh, came to see me about 10 months later and uh, asked a, kind of a strange question. She was curious to know if we had stopped our direct mail program, if we had uh, or significantly curtailed the number of people we were sending uh, direct mail asks to. And uh, very puzzled, I said, no, no, we hadn't done that. And, and why? why? Why was she asking? Why, why did she think we would do such a thing? 
and and she uh, pulled out uh, some forms that she had on her desk, some of our old gift uh, response forms, our gift uh, reply coupons that showed that um, in the area where we had asked some of those uh, questions about planned giving, uh, those tick boxes, if you will, uh, if people would like more information about uh, making a gift in their will, that they had normally received about 12 or so responses every time we sent a piece of mail out. And so at the University of Alberta, that meant we were mailing at that time three times a year, uh, three times a year with uh, 12 responses from people um, saying that they indeed would like information about making a gift in their will. Uh, means about 36 people did not put their hands up. And at the University of Alberta at the time, uh, the average bequest gift was uh, $110,000. So we did the math and we figured up about $3.96 million was potentially lost because people didn't put up their hands. But even a little bit further, we learn, we know through research that only about one in 10 donors uh, who actually intend to leave you a bequest put their hand up. So if we had actually uh, had maybe uh, 12 people per moment inspired by that. Uh, really, we were looking at uh, closer to 120 every time and 360, which means potentially we were in the $39.6 million range. So that's how I potentially cost the University of Alberta $40 million in one fell swoop in, uh, in about 10 months uh, trying to simplify our reply coupon. Well, the good news is that the University of Alberta is doing just fine, and uh, and we have the benefit of learning from your mistakes. So are, are you a fan of that uh, tick box now? Look, it is the number one thing that you can do immediately if you're not doing it already, if you use the mail to raise money, if you put those reply coupons in your packages make sure if there's one thing you do is add that little tick box about making a gift in your will. Uh, when people put their hands up, that is a very good indication that you have an expectancy coming your way. Well, let's get into three mistakes that you see a lot of nonprofits make when, when they're marketing their legacy program. And the first one is that um, you see a lot of nonprofits explain how to leave a gift in your will. Why should we not tell our donors how they can leave a gift in their will? Yeah, that's a great question, Mike. So, so many times we're seeing that the complete focus on materials that we share with our donors about these kinds of gifts really focus on the technical side of things, how to make a gift. And what we know from really solid research that uh, some of our amazing colleagues in Canada have been doing is that donors know about these kinds of gifts. They're very familiar with bequests and gifts in their will, uh, and they don't need to, uh, to learn how to do it. They already know how to do it. Uh, they know about them. So the education side of things on the technical aspect really doesn't do anything to advance the relationship. 
And if you think about it, at the end of the day, most donors have have a professional advisor, and that sounds fancy for people who aren't millionaires and billionaires, but really, most people have a lawyer who's helping them write their will or uh, a financial advisor who's helping them put together a simple estate plan of what to do with their RRSP or or their house when, when they pass away. So they don't need uh you know this kind of advice from a brochure that a charity puts together certainly uh their lawyer or their financial advisor that they're paying who is a professional should know to, how to help them out on on that front so we definitely want to avoid doing this it it turns people off at worst and at best it's really just kind of useless what should we do instead? Great. So instead, we should focus completely on inspiring the donor to make this kind of gift, telling them why, not how. How do you share uh, what values, uh, deeply held values, does your organization share with your, with your donors? Those are the kinds of things that we want uh, to talk to them about. Uh, we want to inspire them by stories uh uh, of people who look like them, sound like them, have lives like them, uh, to cons- who have also made this kind of gift. Let's focus on the inspiration, on the why, and, and, and not the how. We'll leave the technical stuff to the lawyers and the accounts. That's, that's great. Number two, uh, you see a lot of nonprofits make it hard to read. What kind of marketing do you see that is hard to read? Yeah, so a, a lot of times in these brochures, we want to, uh, uh, you know, plan giving brochures. We're trying to cram in a ton of information, again, uh, around, the, uh, around the hows and the technical information. Uh, into so we end up with brochures that are in tiny font uh, because people are trying to save paper cost and printing cost. Sometimes we even let uh, the graphic designer drive uh, the look and feel of these brochures. So it might be very pretty and and uh, inspire uh, some posts on Instagram from uh, millennials and Generation Z. But we're really missing the boat when we can't actually read uh, what we're putting out in front of our donors, uh, even before uh, we put out stuff that they're not really going to pay attention to. So let's make sure we can uh, make sure they read it. What, what kind of common sort of design mistakes do you see made? Very small font. Uh, at the end of the day, we're talking about uh, the, the at least the most urgent uh Prospective donors for this kind of gift are definitely over 50 and many of them are over 80. So we need to be kind to older eyes. We want to have a minimum of 13 point font. I would say my personal minimum is 14 point, which might seem huge um, to uh, a, a person with young, healthy eyes. Uh, but for anyone really with eyes that are over 40, 45 years old, um, it, it's hard to read smaller font. So that's number one. Number two, let's make sure it is high contrast. So the best high contrast you can get is black text on white background. Don't let your designer come up with all kinds of fancy uh, knockout text. You know, uh, white on red background is particularly terrible. So let's really focus the bulk of the text, the copy on uh, in a nice, large, readable font in black text on, on white background. And we also want to make the font nice and readable. So, 
you know, you can do a quick Google search and find uh, some of the most readable fonts in print. My favorite personal font is uh, Baskerville, not just because it's nice and readable. We also know from some research that the New York Times did several years ago that it's actually the most trustworthy font. It's the font that that readers read and they trust the statements most written in Baskerville. So so let's help our donors along uh, with our trustworthy information by putting it in a trustworthy font. So, so David, I, I can just hear a, a bunch of fundraisers saying, that's great, um, but here's the thing. Our communications department has brand standards and they have a brand guide and they want to do things this way. What do you say to that? Right, so great. You know, as somebody who's... Uh, worked in in this area of fundraising for close to 20 years. I've had my share of conversations and you may say sometimes even battles with uh, communications and marketing uh, a team related to, to brand standards. You know, at the end of the day, we need to have somebody uh, come in to uh, be able to help us along in this conversation that understands that by not following these rules of readability, that you're going to cost your organization money, just like taking the tick boxes off of the donor reply form at the University of Alberta helped us save uh, save some uh, space and reduce some uh, reduce some clutter, visual clutter is what we thought. But at the end of the day, it was actually costing us real donors and real dollars. So I don't know how we can impress upon it is such an important conversation to have with our marketing communications people, you know, and I think most are, are reasonable when we see that there is solid research out there, whether it's through testing that's done internally at your organization or through, uh, you know, repeated research that's been done on this kind of stuff from the for-profit sector, the not-for-profit sector, it's it's all out there. You know, on a personal note, I would say sometimes it's difficult if you have to have this conversation one-on-one as peers in an organization. And sometimes we need to, you know, uh, reach out to uh, someone that can help us uh, be a bit of the uh, bit of the referee on this. You know, maybe it's a, a time to have a conversation with your CEO about why, you know, in this circumstance, uh, we might need to, um, you know, make an exception or loosen up uh, some of our brand standards. And it's also not a bad time, just in general, to ask if uh, our brand standards really should be making things less readable and, uh, and, and, and creating difficulty for, for our donors to actually engage in the communication we're putting out there. You know, it, it, it is often an opportunity to say, oh, we should we should maybe uh, rethink some of these standards so that we are donor friendly, uh, so that we are better communicators. The, the third mistake that you see a lot of nonprofits make, and that's mentioning different types of planned gifts. We've all seen these brochures. They mention bequests. They mention publicly traded securities and gifts of life insurance and private company shares. And you say that's a mistake. Why? Yeah, great. Uh, my favorite is a gift of real property. I, I, I'm not a planned giving officer, so I honestly don't even know what that means. Here's the thing. We're talking about our average uh, kind of mom and pop donor next door donor here. Somebody who's sending in a, a $50 check in response to your holiday appeal or somebody who signs up for a five or ten dollar a month gift, 
uh, to support your organization all year round. We're not talking about somebody who is looking for an exotic um, tax strategy related to uh, their personal and corporate wealth. We're talking about a simple bequest, a simple gift in their will. And this is what uh, the vast majority of people um, understand and what makes sense for their estate planning. So really about 96, 97, maybe even as much as 98, 99% of all planned gifts in Canada are gifts and will or, or simple bequests. So let's focus on that market. Let's focus on making, um, uh, having a conversation with, with donors about this tool that's available basically to everyone um, and is uh, something that everyone understands and is interested in. So what kind of messaging, what kind of wording should we use? Yeah, I think uh, gift in will is the one that we've seen through some solid research over the years. You know, definitely don't use planned giving or gift planning or planned gift. Donors really don't know what that is. And honestly, most people outside of our industry really don't either. So uh, let's focus on the, on the terminology that they do understand. Definitely donors understand bequest, uh, but we know through some really fantastic research uh, done by Dr. Russell James that the, uh, that the wording that really lights up people's uh, centers in their brain that gets them excited about these kinds of gifts or, or uh, gets them thinking about these kinds of gifts in a positive way is um, the phrasing uh, gift in will or gifts in your will. So to recap, uh, we're not going to ask, um, we're not going to explain to someone how they can leave a gift in their will. We're going to focus on the impact that they can make by doing so. So we're going to focus on why it's important. We're going to focus on their values and inspire them to make a gift. Number two, we're going to make it easy for them to read. We need to be kind on, on our donor's eyes. We're going to use a big font, 13, 14, 15, maybe even 16 size. Uh, we're going to use high contrast. Uh, we're going to make it a highly readable font. And um, we may have to break some brand standards <laughs> here to make that happen. And number three is we are not going to mention all the different types of planned gifts. We are simply going to ask the donor to leave a gift in their will. We're not going to focus on a really complex legal transaction here. David, you have two very exciting events planned this year to empower fundraisers and marketers uh, to better serve their donors through legacy marketing and through other fundraising activities. Tell us what you've got going on. Oh, great. Yeah, I'm super excited. Oh, we're about to launch on April 2nd, our Day of Good. It's a really exciting uh, hybrid of a masterclass and a one-day conference for fundraisers. This is going to be in Windsor, Ontario. So for all of the people listening to your podcast who are from uh, from the U.S. Midwest and are near Michigan, it's an easy uh, easy drive across the border to see us in Windsor. And for all of your listeners in southwestern Ontario, a fantastic opportunity to spend a, a full, intense day with Tammy Zonker, Paul Nazareth, 
uh, Sam LaPrade and me uh, talking about four different concentrations in fundraising. So we're super pumped about that. And then uh, I'm also really excited to be heading out west again for the Western Canada Fundraising Conference. This year, it will be the fifth annual and we'll be in uh, captivating Kelowna, British Columbia. So Mike, we're really looking forward to seeing you there during the two and a half days and uh, bringing along our roster of about uh, 15 speakers, national and international level speakers, and about 200, 250 of our colleagues from really all across Canada now coming to this uh, amazing conference. And our early bird rate is still on. So uh, it's a great time to snap up a deal for 599 bucks. You can come and spend, uh, spend two and a half days with some of the hugest gurus in our industry and really get uh, some real quality time with uh, with them and with your colleagues. David, uh, I look forward to being at the Western Canada Fundraising Conference. I went last year. It was an amazing time. Where can people get tickets? Uh, great. So just head to our website, wcfc.ca, and uh, click on our links to the tickets. You also get all the full information there and savings on hotel and flights and all of that good stuff too. Before we go, we ask every guest on this show, what is your encouragement for every nonprofit leader, fundraiser, marketer who's who's listening, who is doing the hard work day in, day out of building good in our communities and in our world? Oh, wow. Uh, well, first of all, uh, congratulations and gratitude to all of those people who are making our, our communities, our cities, uh, our country, our planet better. We're, we're, we see the difference every day. And uh, and so I really appreciate that. My encouragement really is about, you know, we can often be so overwhelmed with, you know, all the new things we've got to do with all the other things that we've got to do. And I'm, I'm a fan of kind of the 80% rule. If you can't, uh, you know, we might not be able to get 100% of the way toward our goals of uh, trying those new programs or, or starting something new that our boss really is trying to do. But if we can just work as hard as we can on the basics and get 80% of the way down the road to an ambitious goal. I think that's something that a lot of us, if we can forgive ourselves on that last 20% of not being able to take on every single thing or or do every brand new initiative. That's really the thing that I hope people take away from and give themselves a little bit of a break. David, thanks for this. Thank you for the work you do and, and sharing it with our audience. I think these uh, these three things are easy, quick wins that will help uh, so many of our listeners improve their legacy marketing program today. Thank you for being vulnerable enough to share uh, maybe the biggest mistake of your career so far. We really appreciate hearing about about that. Uh, excellent, Mike. Well, thanks so much for uh, for doing these. Uh, the podcast is amazing. And I just love how great you are breaking down simple tips that people can put to work right away and improve their fundraising. So kudos to you. Great podcast, big fan. And uh, and thanks for including me. Thanks, David. We'll, we'll see you at the conference. You betcha. Have a great day. Well, that's it for today. I hope you learned something new and that you can start making some of these easy changes in your legacy marketing so you can help guide your donors toward generosity and boost your revenue. Thank you so much for listening, for joining me on the Build Good podcast brought to you by Build Good. 
you can always reach me at mike at buildgood.org. And if you like the show, and if you think it would help other fundraisers and nonprofit marketers like you, please make sure to subscribe, leave a review, wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm your host, Mike Dirksen. I'm cheering you on as you build good in the world.